0: Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarfcast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose.
1: Awoga, this is a Dwarfcast.
0: Howdy, partners, and welcome on along to the Dwarfcast book club. The series in which we reread, discuss, and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels, partner by partner, uh, western theme.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Today, it is the final ever edition of the Dwarfcast Book Club as we wrap up Rob Grant's Backwards with part five, High Midnight, which is a western themed one, and the epilogue, The Difference 2, and maybe some general thoughts on the book and indeed the novels as a whole. Who knows? I'm Sheriff Ian Symes. And joining me in the saloon are Dangerous Danny Stevenson hello. and the Jonathan Caps Kid. <laughs> yeah, hello
2: <laughs> Yee-no.
0: We've also got our britches stuffed with a selection of comments from the lowlives and desperados that we call our regular listeners slash readers, who've been leaving comments over at www.ganomy.tv, y'all. As always, we recommend you re-familiarise yourself with the book before listening and if you've forgotten what happened
3: last time here's a little recap. Right from the beginning of infinity. (laughs) Just as
2: an aside, if your britches are full it means you've shit yourself. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Don't shit yourself. (laughs) I see no conflict
1: here.
0: (laughs) The crew return to their own universe to find Red Dwarf is lost and bits of holly are strewn across an asteroid belt. They recover him, and he has just enough power left to tell them the ship has been taken over by agonoids, a race of amoral, virtually indestructible rogue simulants with silly names, how bent on revenge against humanity. One of them, Junk Heap, converts the ship into an extremely elaborate and vividly described torture chamber, and organises a deadly tournament to determine which agonoid gets the honour of slowly murdering the one surviving human. The competitors, including one Pizza Crap. Rap, mostly wipe each other out in pursuit of the prize, only for Junkie to flush any survivors into space anyway. Meanwhile, the adolescent Lister and Kat are injured when Starbug is sent spinning out of control by an impact, which results in the hull being breached. Crichton plugs the gap with his arse, and then Starbug is boarded by Ace Rimmer, and dimension jump happens. After recovering, Lister Space walks out to fix the hull breach and free Crichton's arse, only to discover a different arse has taken its place, that of pizza crap. And so that's where we pick up after a brief sojourn into a different story about some sheriff in some old western.
1: <laughs>
0: I assume, which I don't think is explicitly spelt out, but I assume that Crichton's reading material over the last 40 years has influenced his, uh, his dream.
3: Good spot.
2: Yeah, it's definitely the guy in that sunup.
3: Yeah, which is, I, I guess, is 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 a nice kind of replacement to in Gunman where it's like for some reason his mind's turned it into some old western yeah <laughs> <You know. laughs> somehow somehow So that was a nice bit of seeding because it wasn't just shoehorned in there a while back it was a nice bit as well like it mm. you know it had its own reason for existing because it was incredibly funny and also leads into this. I believe this usually happens at the start of a, an episode or the start of like a book or something, but I believe this is what you would call in medias res. Yes. In that we are in the situation we haven't got a fucking clue. And yeah,
0: theoretically. Theoretically. <laughs> although the overriding point remains that I've mentioned a few times during this book in particular is that, yes, in theory we're not supposed to know what's going on, but the likelihood of there being people who are reading yeah. this book without having seen Gunman is slim.
3: I love how Rob has written it as if you're not going to know. So he's still he's still written it with the reveals, and that's still yeah. fun to read, even though you, you know exactly what's going on the first time you're reading it. You know, yeah. possibly more fun. <laughs> yeah, even yeah,
0: because it removes any sense of jeopardy. <laughs> that, like I often find it's better to enjoy something that's twisty after I already know what the twists are. Like, mm-hmm. A second viewing of something like Inside Number Nine is often most rewarding because you know you you lose all that tension of like not being sure what's, yeah. where it's going. Once you know it's going to end and resolve itself well, I can enjoy it a lot more. You spot the smaller details. And appreciate the craft and the art in slowly drip-feeding information. The pizza craft. <laughs> so, yeah, we're introduced to Sheriff Will Carton, and there's quite a lot of discussion in the comments about that name. So Dave says, All the machine names like Jeff Calculator and Wyatt Memory are a bit weird. Does Carton have some computer-related meaning that I'm missing, other than sounding close to Crichton? I don't think it does. I think it just sounds yeah. a bit like Crichton in the it, same way.
2: He he sort of forgotten his own name, and it's like it's like Derek Custer. It's like time's, mm, time time yeah. has gone on that long that he's forgotten his name.
3: It's weird that like yeah the the will bit though like is that supposed to be anything like is that like yeah his will?
2: Dave says that's his yeah. Uh, oh, yes, maybe will maybe signifiers need to find the willpower to overcome the apocalypse virus maybe it's like a clue yeah. or something a... but yeah it is it's sort of you think it should mean something and yet yeah, it might not be as deep as you know yeah. maybe that's a problem because it does feel like you should be looking for meaning in something that maybe isn't there
3: i guess jeff and jeff calculator and wyatt in wyatt memory those names don't mean anything it's just the surnames so yeah. it's following yeah. that pattern like white is a common sort of
0: Western like way Yeah, earth,
2: yeah, kind
3: of thing. yeah. I'm not sure about Jeff. Though. Jeff, <laughs> Jeff K.
0: <laughs> Jeff is only a common word in uh, Rainbow. It's just.
2: <laughs> it's just. It's sort of John. John. Uh, my mate always used that joke of like it's like the the Richard Herring thing, isn't it? Like e and, The Ian thing. E yeah. e X. But like yeah. sort of John Calculator. <laughs> <So> yes. <Yeah. it's, laughs> Yeah, Ian,
0: <laughs> yeah. the calculator was invented by Ian Calculator. <laughs> Ian Calculator. <laughs> yeah, the character names all being metaphors and, you know, representing bits of Crichton or, or elements of his personality reminded me a bit of Terraform. Yeah. Um, where you had yes. self belief and charm, etc. But then there was the odd exception, like Tommy Tate,
3: and that's just a name. That just doesn't a have guy. Anything that's just
2: He's just this guy, you know.
3: Tommy Tate well, Clem offers a possible explanation of, of Crichton's name. He says, I wonder whether Carton is named after Sydney Carton in A Tale of Two Cities. There are some similarities. I've asked Rob on Twitter, but he hasn't replied.
2: Now, what's is there a significance between this and The Tale of Two Cities? Am I, missing something,
0: cause don't, I know. don't know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I know about The Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. <laughs>
3: and that's all i know about <laughs> now <laughs> something,
1: something.
3: yes we're definitely suited to run a book club <clears throat>
0: <laughs> well if they are books exclusively written by <laughs> people bad. involved in red dwarf then we're fine yeah but charles dickens never involved in red dwarf as far as i remember not really not really yeah, sort it's of doctor like who
3: it's it's
2: set during the french revolution so uh, no <laughs> Not really.
3: Right. Okay. I'm assuming that I'm. I'm going to guess that Sidney Carton is formerly a great man who turned to the drink and probably finds his courage from somewhere and does something very complicated in a white suit. We're about to find out because I just saw yeah, it. We're all googling.
0: Him. He's a shrewd young Englishman educated just like in Crone.
3: Shrewsbury. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. He's shrewd and he was educated. Shrewsbury. He's shrewd from Shrewsbury. He was <laughs> a shrew breeder. And he um, also mended shoes. He's a shoemaker. <laughs> He's a shoemaker. He raced um, motorcars. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got.
0: His last meaningful action in life is to give strength and comfort to a seamstress who is about to be executed. And his final words are It's a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done It is a far, far better rest than I go to that I've ever known Which is another famous line So maybe, spoilers The fact that he ends up sacrificing himself Ties in to that Maybe,
2: Mm
3: -hmm. quite possibly Because, as I will probably get onto That's Yes Yeah, But not for another few chapters No, spoilers So, just as a, a, a general point About the tone of this first chapter. I know it's completely different dialogue, but it f- seems to me like maybe the "It's a Wonderful Life" stuff was very Rob because I guess the the dialogue kind of just flows in a very similar way in this. Like it's it's clearly very easy for him to to um, write in the really kind of the, the, the sort of affected dialogue, and it's it's very evocative. It's it's very effective, just like the "It's a Wonderful Life" stuff. Mm. I think, Doug. Duke- Said in one of the documentaries on the
2: DVDs that it said one of them was very book based and one of them was very film based. Was Doug the film based one and Rob the book based one? I can't remember which way around. Don't
3: remember that one. No. Um. But I can't remember
2: who it is that said it was like so sort of like someone like that. Like I think it was Rob who was very much sort of book based, and I like my was more film based. It's one of the reasons why they were able to pull from different. Areas mm, when it comes mm. to and it, a western is, is more of a film format. It's, more it's, not, a film. it's not a literary form. Well, the it?
3: most famous type of western story is like the old spaghetti westerns. Yeah, um, maybe what, like you know frontier fiction in novels is is more of a thing. But I'm actually not that aware of it. But um, I do maybe like maybe. how, um, in fact, the very first line, something like the um, the sun beat down like uh, like a laser that someone had forgotten to turn off. And I love that mix of a Western style metaphor and sci fi kind of combined together, it's just a really nice scene setting thing.
0: Dave points out that the narrator changes for these sections and it's more of yeah, it's it's Rob writing in the style of a Western novel. Yeah. Dave points out a couple of examples. I like the way the narrator's cadence even changes to match the Western milieu Stuff like (laughs) all nonchalant-like and one of them fancy parasol contraptions from Paris Europe is lovely.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: On the subject of how obvious this is that we're in a Goodman situation, Clem points out that there's little clues, um, like Billy saying that Carton has no hair to suggest that it's Crichton. And International Debris points out a line that I really liked, uh, which is a tumbleweed cliched its way across the street, which (laughs) is... Perhaps the ultimate
3: noun-as-a-verb moment in, yeah. uh, in a book. Am I going mad here? Because one of two things is happening. Either that line has been in an earlier book, or we talked about this line when talking about the writing style while doing a book club for an earlier book. Because I, I distinctly remember we've talked about this line before, Like a tumbleweed clichéd. I don't recall. I think we might have
2: offhand gone, oh, in a yeah. later book there's a tumbleweed cliched across the street or like
3: Yeah, maybe, okay
2: Dave mentioned inside the line I just threw down my six shooters, rolled up my sleeves and ducked out with them, is a weird image Presumably, it should be duked Was this corrected <laughs> in the paperback? Sir Ian, <laughs> was that corrected in the paperback? <laughs>
3: he actually uh... threw a load of ducks at them, so this is correct <laughs> It was also ducked for me but I thought it was a scanning error <laughs> Oh, no, I found it um it still
0: says ducked it out in the paperback.
2: Ducked it out. I thought like I don't know, like boxing. That's kind of how I mm. saw it. Like that's that but then again it might be wrong but
0: They settled their differences by doing impersonations of ducks. <laughs> and whoever <laughs> had the best impression of a duck won but it doesn 't matter because this is a made up story anyway by will <laughs> and a slightly racist one, but um one that fits in with the the time in which it 's set yes
3: those damn engines they umheap a big problem <laughs> before we we move on from this opening chapter there's there 's another nice bit of i mean it 's just full of nice language, really, this whole part of the book, to be honest, but um when Carton walks into the bar. The line, the piano player decided this didn't need accompaniment. <laughs> Just a very yeah. nice descriptive
0: way. Yeah. Adding a thought process to the cliche that yeah, in a western, the yeah. music goes off when someone answers exactly. Um, should I? Should I? Come a bit? No, I think no. this bit's
3: better off. He's just
0: scoring the bar right <laughs> now. That's what he's doing.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if those piano players really like internally congratulate themselves when they time the stopping of the music really yeah. well <laughs> in situations like that. Like, oh, that was a fucking good one. I've just yeah, yes. it just
2: happens to be a lot of rests in that bit of music, so that when they, they get. <laughs> it's that big and stop playing it's like oh that was a massive coincidence wasn't it well, when everyone started to have a fight
3: he's got to <laughs> time it well so everyone can hear the chairs scraping so you got to stop first then the chair, then everyone moves yeah. around and the chairs are scraping
2: interestingly enough like I always find in the episode that Howard actually does time the stopping of the music to be exactly on the end of a bar like he literally works out to play it and then listen, mm. and it stops and then that's it and the timing <laughs> and the scraping the chairs all happen and it's all kind of it's really good.
0: Clem says impossible not to hear the version of the theme tune from Gunman, unreading the old honky tonk keys tinkling inside the saloon. Exactly that. Yeah, <laughs> and then it ends with the Apocalypse Boys turning up, but uh, without death, he's having the day off.
2: I genuinely forgot how that that got resolved later, but I was like thinking, like, why is there only three of them? Like, where? Yeah. Why is there only three? Why, is is, there, is it the Three Men of the Apocalypse? Did they make up the Four men, Horsemen of the Apocalypse for the show? Or did I just... <laughs> and I just couldn't work out why there was three. And I was like, it just really confused me for ages.
0: Well, if you want further um, musings on the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, then listen out for our next uh, dwarf cast. <laughs> <laughs> there's a teaser. So, we'll leave the Western behind for a minute. Because then there's a series of very short chapters... In which a lot happens yeah. <laughs> back in the real world. It's relentless. This little section, basically chapters two to yeah, six, roughly. basically they're all like a page one or big two, chapter. Yeah. yeah. And it's all kind of one big scene, effectively, but it's divided into different sets of characters or you know simultaneous actions that are all happening very quickly, all happening at the same time. And uh, so, what happens? <laughs>
3: Ace dies. Oh yeah, that's the first. That's the first big. Ace thing. is fucked. Yeah. So it, well, it picks up with Junkie's thoughts very briefly. Yeah. yeah. And then crashes back to Lister and pizza. Yeah. He as he is trying to get him back into Starbucks.
0: Last June, Mister Lister had a pizza, and he didn't like
3: it. <laughs> he definitely doesn't like this pizza. <laughs> so then, he fired a jetpack at his face. <laughs> so there's a lot of dissatisfaction with Ace's death going on in in the comments. Mm. I've noticed.
2: It's been a long time since I've read this book. And because there's been so many fake outs in this book, mm. I was absolutely convinced that Ace doesn't die here. Wasn't yeah, dead. I thought it was like a fake you know. out that something had happened that it was like he ended up finding a way out of the situation the way that Ace does, you know. You know, by dislocating his mm-hmm. arms mm-hmm. and slipping out of the thing and then do you know what I mean? <laughs> All that stuff about, you know, how did yeah. you escape and it's like But yeah, no, it's it's fucking off.
0: And the way it's described is... He dies in the vacuum of space. It's described as a muffled, wet explosion, which I found, for a three-word phrase, surprisingly graphic. It's very, very evocative. Yeah. The
2: roaring of a terrible wind, as well. Well, we've
3: all had that problem.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, famine does later. We'll we'll find work that out. <laughs> if you have a bad
3: pizza. Then... Yeah, it
2: was just. It's just everyone dies horrible deaths in this yeah. fucking book.
3: <laughs> yeah. Clem highlights one of the other reasons why it's it's really unsettling. Is that Ace's superhuman stoicism here only he makes his death that much more bleak still doing the stupid pet names when he's about to die horribly silly but it's also mm. really grim somehow worse than if he'd been screaming and begging also very true to the character as well of course he would be like that
2: it also feels like a, like a serious overcompensation as well like it's like the more scared he is yeah the
3: more he puts on the bravado exactly yeah the worse his uh, pet names get like the more tortured they become, hmm. the scared the more scared <laughs> yeah. he is inside. I did think it would have been nice to have him i don't know a little
0: break in his mm. relentless character or something to make him feel a bit more human. Mm-hmm. It would have perhaps made his sacrifice mean a bit more if he felt like a real human being at any point and not just a sort of action hero character. Yeah. Mm who'd been sort of parachuted in.
3: He is a bit of a device, I think. And 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 I do think that there's a wider theme going on across the whole book that we'll get to and it's it all kind of hinges on this moment because it is a a moment of kind of selfless self-sacrifice it's basically the sort of death that someone like Ace it's inevitable for a character like Ace to have this death, this self-sacrificing death because that's exactly what the mm. character is and to the point where he's a little bit of a <laughs> trope almost, you're right they didn't flesh him out much as a character because all the fleshing out of Rimmer we, we've got with our Rimmer and so mm. he's more this kind of idealised version that's here to Perform a task, which is to set everyone an example. That's what we saw throughout the whole thing. Like, it, be, people around him are improved through his actions and through his selflessness, and that is true right until this moment where he saves Lister's mm. life and then saves it again by getting rid of the jetpack. And that's an incredibly important act. It just maybe didn't have to be so horrible.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, jetpacks, uh, we we do have an AW here. Oh yeah, <laughs> we have an acronym watch, JP, which, as JP. Pete Part Three points out, it takes as much time to say the single syllable word "jacked as it does to say their first letters. Oh, yeah, it's, it's not quite as bad as WWW. um <laughs> yeah. <it's> getting there. <laughs> And sticking with Pete, he says, Ace is dead, yay, and with it comes my big problem with this novel. It's framed around Arnold and Ace with those lovely logs, and yet it's all a bit of a sham. This is not a novel about Ace and Arnold, or else there will be more than a couple of chapters afforded to exploring their relationship. Mm. It's like Rob thought Dimension Jump would be a perfect choice for adapting, but chose to go all in on expanding the opening three minutes of the episode and forgot what the primary focus of the episode was.
3: I don't agree. Well, wow. well, we're going to end up like touching on like what happens right at the end here, but I think like re- reading this fresh, I think it's not a pervasive theme so much, but the the theme here is maturity and self-sacrifice throughout the whole book. Cuz I mean it starts with Rimmer's mother having to make a self-sacrificing decision of of holding her son back or like you know in one in one part. Mm. Rimmer also makes a self-sacrifice. He's forced to mature because he realises he can't rely on his parents anymore. And as Ace, he sets this kind of shining example of selflessness most of the time. Like All the best things he does is selfless, and which leads to this point of him sacrificing himself in front of everyone. Everyone sees exactly what he does. Meanwhile, on the backwards world, you've got Lister and Kat basically turning into their most selfish mm-hmm. versions of themselves as teenagers and all the problems that that causes... And the theme here is the story of their growth, Ace Rimmer's example, and then the final sacrifice that everyone was perfectly prepared to die for Crichton in order for him to defeat the virus, which he does. Mm. And then right at the end, the epilogue, we once again see Ace sacrificing himself for the benefit of someone else to put a cap on it all. Yeah. And I think that's what the, the theme is. It's not very strong but it's there I think maturity and self-sacrifice
0: and that is a different thing from any of the previous dwarf novels which have been, maybe it's that we haven't been out looking for a a theme or anything but I don't recall there being an overriding theme to the others other than continuing adventures In yeah. the Red Dwarf world, but this is as, as part three of a trilogy, which is what this is, regardless of the fact that there's four books, it's, this, is, <laughs> <laughs> this is part three of a trilogy. It feels like it does have a bit more of a thought through emotional journey to it as well. Yeah, Like it could be a potential full stop. The fact that it has been for <laughs> 25 years is perhaps not what was intended, but it's one of those where it's, yeah, it, it feels like a different way of doing a Red Dwarf novel. Last Human did as well, but that changed so much yeah. the style of prose and everything and the structure. This continued the same structure as the first two novels, but chose to tell a more complex secondary story as well as just the adventures that were
3: ongoing. Yeah. And that secondary story definitely, like it, it loosely informs what what's going on. You know, like it, it highlights the difference between the two Rimmers. It, our Rimmer is trying to win that race because he is in a battle for survival like he he's he's having to to battle to survive so he has to be selfish almost he has to win for himself whereas ace has the emotional maturity to know when a self-sacrifice is needed and it's about the journey from one place to the other and like rimmer our rimmer ends up being there because he goes out and faces the cunt brothers and he dies for it and he was pretty convinced that he was going to be able to die because he highlights the the possibility before he does it, so they've all just seen Ace go out and make this sacrifice for them, and they're following yeah. his example. They have become better by his presence, just like we see throughout the whole book.
2: It's slightly bittersweet as well because it's the, the point of the Agonoids is there is to torture and kill the humans, and it's like it feels like Ace's sacrifice only like obviously it's it's to save the crew, but it doesn't it doesn't deny the Agonoids their trophy. They get mm. to do what they want to yeah, do anyway.
3: You know if he'd known there was another agonoid, he might have made a different mm. decision,'m not sure mm. um but I think yeah i I don't think that the epilogue and midlog and prologue I don't think it's like from a different book that is supposed to be about the relationship between Rimmer and ace because i don't I don't think at any point the relationship between Rimmer and Ace is is that important. It's more about where each of them ended up as human beings and the different impacts they have. I guess we'll
0: come back to this, I think because we're. There's specific points to be made about how the epilogue relates to the midlog. Yeah, so we'll save, (laughs) so save that.
3: It's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult to like (laughs) not jump to the end of this book at this point because it's it's all building to it, isn't it? It's like yeah, yeah, every little thing's connected at this point. Of course, how does Lewis Pemberton fit into all this? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you at the end of the episode. (laughs) I won't. Just going to keep that hanging (laughs) there. Yep. Thank God you've arrived. Lewis Pemberton's just got here, <laughs> and he's got fresh coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, universally,
0: I think in the um, in the comments, people <laughs> are pissed off about Ace uh,
3: being killed off when he was. He could have had more time. I think. I think it's fair to say that it's it's a bit sudden. It's a bit of a shock, very and there should have been more time with him for yeah. sure.
0: I think the main objection paraphrasing the many many comments is that we've had all this set up we had that whole part two of the book is dedicated to ace's universe and it tells like it takes a long time to luxuriate over all the details of ace's backstory and then he turns up in our dimension and he's fucked off within about three chapters
3: it's true maybe people shouldn't underestimate the value of that world building that world building is valuable for its own sake you know, it doesn't. Mm. It doesn't have to have necessarily been a build-up to something because that chapter's brilliant and it was enjoyable in a song.
0: I think it almost works better this book as a series of individual parts, like the way that we've been reading it.
3: Yeah, with a couple of months in between each one,
0: <laughs> with a big caps in between, because now <laughs> you can look at that "Smoke Me a Clipper," uh, no, <laughs> "Smoke Me a Kipper" chapter as being just a standalone thing like an episode of a of a long running you know an American so, yeah, show where yeah. they have one episode it's like a bottle episode or whatever that shows you a different set of characters you can enjoy it kind of in it's own right without worrying too much about how it fits in and yeah as a standalone piece it's just a really nice bit of Red Dwarf expanded universe which is something that we rarely yeah, get to
3: see exactly yeah Yeah. there was a, there was a good comment um, oh, let me find it uh, part 3 does make a funny point about Ace's kind of fleetingness, I guess. To emphasise how Ace has spent much, uh, such a little time on Starbuck, Cat refers to him as the guy who looks like goalpost head, rather than like, by his name. Um, well, which is a funny line as well, to be fair. But also, isn't the cat
0: supposed to be like severely injured? Yeah, his legs broke. Oh, fuck, yes. His legs have, his legs have been broken in the last chapter, and now he's out doing space walks and trying to join in the action sequences.
3: Ace has so, Ace really A, fixed his leg up. <laughs>
0: yeah, it, it's, it solves one minor gripe and, and introduces another. So you can excuse the fact that the cat specifically doesn't know who Ace is other than the guy who looks like Goldpost Head because he's been either unconscious or delirious <laughs> for the entire time that Ace yeah. has been there. But then, if you take that into account, you have to ignore it again for the fact that he's now just running around being an action hero, like going on a space walk and whatnot.
3: I guess he only does the one space walk right at the end, and the rest of the time he's in the game, isn't he?
0: There was a bit in this chapter where the Cat
3: oh we get yeah the cat, no, the cat
0: comes yeah the cat helps. Uh, Lister into the airlock is wearing his gold spacesuit and does some action orientated thing. But then maybe it's the same thing as they've got the same technology that they had in Better Than Life that magically made Kat and Lister not emaciated.
3: Oh yeah. Just supercharged a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Fair point.
2: It's not like because Red Dwarf
0: and continuity.
3: What? To, to be fair, we would have eviscerated Doug for this. So yeah, we yeah,
1: yeah we. Yeah.
0: They're consistent in their inconsistency. But it goes on, and then we go to the next part of this sequence is Crichton <laughs> floating through space. Um,
3: this makes me hopeful that Rob hadn't forgotten what comedy was at this point. Like after the mo- after that really gruesome leak ending to the chapter was just the first line of Crichton was trying desperately hard to put a positive spin on things is just it was just a laugh out loud moment like it's a really nice puncturing of the tone when you know you're going to be in Crichton's head you know it's going to be um, a fun page and a half.
0: There's much more Crichton POV in this novel than any of the previous ones and it's all the better for it. I mean Rob has at this stage discarded any thoughts that we are st- that we still occasionally get played with is, oh which version of Crichton is this, so what's ha- this happening here in Crichton 's timeline, and he's just writing the best version of yeah. Crichton yeah, yeah. He's, he's, yeah he's writing the version that he'd been honing on TV for the last four series, yeah. and not being too worried about how he fits into the book universe and he 's just doing funny Crichton yeah. stuff, and yeah it's another thing that, a, a chapter that relies on the device of Crichton not wanting to think about things and the amusing nuts that he gets himself into as
3: a result yeah classic Crichton yeah international debris highlights one really lovely internal bit from Crichton much needed after the last chapter quote after a dozen or so best case scenarios had concluded with the death and destruction of all parties Crichton decided to try and stop thinking altogether Um, (laughs) he says that's a marvellous sentence and I won't won't read any more out of it because it might actually be my passage later on (laughs)
0: And yeah, it rattles through. Like we said, these, these whole next few chapters are all very short. But next up, Rimmer gives an uncharacteristically rousing speech. Yeah, about not letting Ace's death being an empty gesture and and sort of firing up Lister and Cat to to keep fighting and and carry on. Which is oddly out of character in some ways, but maybe if you're being generous, it's it is Arnold being affected by Ace. Yeah, and and wanting to be a bit more Ace. And you know, after seeing the sacrifice that he made, and, and realizing that it, there's an opportunity there for him to be a little bit
3: braver. Yeah, and he's also staring death in the face, and you know, presumably he's like, well, there's no other, <laughs> there's no other option here. We're going to have to do something. So when faced with no other options, he decides like, okay, now's the time to be brave. <laughs> um, Dave
0: points out these chapters are short. Was Rob being paid per chapter? <laughs> 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 because yeah, then we go straight into the next little bit. Which is revealing what happens to Crichton is he gets picked up by uh John Keep and uh John Keep. John John, John the Keep forces his way on board. And it's described as he accessed my CPU via my C S C I socket. Excuse me. Uh is that a real thing? Yeah. yeah.
3: Well no no <laughs> Well a SCSI socket is, yeah.
2: Yeah, but can you get something out of your CPU, Captain? No no. There's nothing (laughs) in the CPU. So um, it's this. So basically, a SCSI socket is like those big, long. It's a very old school term. Yeah, it's but like it's a, a
3: big, like a parallel, or like something you'd might plug a printer into. It would I be think. an old printer cable, right. yeah, very old. Of, yeah, very, very nineties. The one
0: that's got like twenty-eight pins or something. Mm, yeah, yeah but it's yeah, not very pins. Dense, it's more like it
2: looks like a big USB, like a mm-hmm. big long USB. If you, if you, d- Google link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, link
3: in the show notes to the history of the SCSI socket. But needless to say, I built a computer about three years after this book was released, my first one, and there was no SCSI technology anywhere near it. So, like, it was, I think it was already quite old by this point. It's SATA um,
2: to basically overtaken that, and then yeah. SSDs took over SATA.
3: So it's like a. Well, SSDs do run on SATA as well, like oh. the slower ones do. Oh, yeah. right, okay. It's all PCI now, mate. Oh, it's PCI gone mad. <laughs> international debate's like fucking scuzzy socket you what mate it took me so long to
2: realise the character of scuzzy in reboot was actually named after the scuzzy cable because I didn't realise that scuzzy was oh, actually yeah. a, a shorthand so yeah that, that, was, that was that was a moment so you can't store things in your CPU that's what
3: we've learned. no you don't store things in the CPU the C- you store things I mean you can make your CPU in do RAM something over. I suppose but you know
2: yeah so I suppose you can make your CPU access
3: information. Well, the thing is, the CPU the CPU gets told what to do as well. The CPU's just So maybe
0: the he used a SCSI socket to force, rather than extracting information from Crichton's CPU, put inputs into his CPU. Yes, yeah, he gave instructions made to his CPU. Like, made Crichton physically, against his will, type in the code and, in, and put yeah. his... Yeah, eye up to
3: the yeah I mean because the CPU Would, would, would be the, the thing that gives his Fingers instructions The CPU is the brain Well actually no, that's a bad analogy Because it's not um, <laughs> Anyway continue. CPU
0: is a bit of a computer
3: Yes yes it's not a brain It's not a human thing The brain is more the programming language Anyway
0: <laughs> Getting something
2: really not up there.
3: Yeah, <laughs> there's no analogy. Yeah, it's it's computer.
0: Mm-hmm. Get over it. So yeah, in this chapter, Cat grabs a bazookoid, but rather than threatening Junkie mm. with it, threatens to kill Lister, which struck me as very smart. Possibly a little bit to... We as the reader are aware that Junkie's and re- indeed, how all, much? The ag- yeah. all the all the agonoids want to do is torture lister uh like forever for as long as possible and like junk isn't backwards about coming forwards with this uh <laughs> with this plan of his he's um, not shy is the lad he's not shy but possibly hasn't made enough of it for cat to realize for cat specifically to realize that just killing lister now would be the worst possible thing for junk but nevertheless if you give him the benefit of the doubt on that one then it's a smart thing to do and it really reminded me of Cured yes. of him pretending to be a psychopath or, or whatever it is it ended up doing or oh, is a psychopath fuck. but played on that and, and you know had his pokey face
3: yeah and it's it's certainly no inventing a whole new form of transport to get them <laughs> across the uh, galaxy faster
1: Yeah,
3: <clears throat> like he did in Last Human <laughs> <laughs> it's our last opportunity we need to get our steel toe caps in somewhere and a nipple-sized
0: pastry cutters. <laughs> and just as this chapter ends, Lister is about to say "motherfucker," Yeah.
3: which is interesting. <laughs> oh, well, it's good; it works because it's because he doesn't it's like It's not a very dwarfy thing to say, therefore, yeah. The I author doesn't give him the describe. chance to say it, yeah. but it it's it's there for effect. It's there to punctuate. I mean, yeah, like, the, A few people have said it now. The cliffhangers have got a little bit silly. The sheer amount of like. He really is sticking to, like, everything has to end on a cliffhanger. Yeah.
0: To the extent of, like, chopping up what yeah. is essentially one piece of... one sequence of action into four or five chapters so that we can have four or five cliffhangers.
3: You could see the the need to dictate the pace a little bit because, mm. by necessity, the, the Western stuff is slow and quite dense and needs to fit a lot of stuff in. and It also needs to hang around long enough for it to be impactful, so... When you're not there, so th- th- that presumably is why he's chopped everything up, right, so we're seeing everything out of order. all the Western stuff happens way after this point, yeah, but we've already started it, so that's the reason why it's chopped up, and then keeping these chapters snappy and keeping as many cliffhangers kind of i don't know made, made, made like i mean when I was reading this it was it didn't it never felt like a slog. No, yeah, it works, and there's a lot to take in as a technique, it works for yeah. sure.
0: it's a page turner, as to say
3: yeah, but it it starts to become obvious that that's what he's doing rather than it feeling a bit natural. but there were worse crimes, like murder <laughs> <laughs> so
0: then this section concludes with Jung keep finally being defeated, and so um, that's the end of the agonoids, yeah, and again, it seems pretty quick that they're all dealt with. For all that we've just said that's positive about the pace of this section, it does mean that after all that build-up of seeing what they've done to Red Dwarf and then the battle amongst the Agonoids, the whole of, like, not all of the previous chapter, but it kept on cutting back to the Agonoids in the previous chapter, all that leads up to, effectively, about ten pages where the Agonoids are a threat to our crew.
3: Which is... I'm I'm in two minds about it because we're always desperate for them to get back to Red Dwarf. Like that's whenever they're not on Red Dwarf, we kinda want them to go back there because that's a comfy place for them to be and even when Red Dwarf had been corrupted, we kinda wa- want them to get back there. But if they did get back to Red Dwarf, they're dead. They're dead with like or they're not dead, but they're completely fucked. And if more was made, like Rob had written himself into a corner here where like he sets up these these agonoids to be the worst of the worst and it's necessary for them to be for the sense of dread but that means that if they even slightly get what they want the bleakness of the last few chapters or the last chapter of this book would be nothing compared to what he'd have to write in order to cash the <laughs> checks his butsky's been writing so it, it could never have happened it could never have happened yeah. while this still been like a, a, a publishable work okay. <laughs>
0: as Dave says I guess having Lister and the Agonoids good band name together (laughs) is never really going to work for long as there's a limit to how much tension you can drag out of it and how incompetent you can make the Agonoids to allow the Dwarfers to escape yeah and yeah I think that's the thing they either have to be shit and you've made all the build up a lie or they eviscerate (laughs) our crew (laughs) over the course of
3: several novels. So what we get is two agonoids, both in slightly suboptimal circumstances for them. So one of them's Mm. out in space and and so, you know, it wasn't in the most ideal of circumstances and this one has to deal with a a fucked ship and oxygen running out and he's distracted and and that that allows Crichton to execute his um, (laughs) possibly (laughs) short-sighted plan. um, (laughs) The Promised Land... It's it's like the promised land with Lister um, ejecting the whole engine and then Rimmer, yeah. <laughs> Rimmer saying, oh, brilliant, brilliant plan, but what happens next? <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> great news, I've shot a hole in the side of the yeah. ship.
3: <laughs> I mean, it's certainly screwed that agonoid cunt, but, I mean, what are we going to do? <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs>
3: well, he
0: gets away with it. He does. Flem says, it's a bit of a cliche, but I do like the way Junkiep talks. He's a proper gleefully evil articulate buddy. With a Yorkshire accent, of course.
3: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's good. And then again, you can't have too much of these of these characters. Like we, we, I think we get about the right amount of them because they're caricatures, and they're daft. And Rob manages to keep them threatening and scary throughout the whole thing. And he, it, it, they never get to the point where they're where they're just silly. And I think that's because he's kind of sparing with how much we solve them. Mm. Um, there's always the threat of what they're gonna do, rather than what they're actually doing.
2: A good example of that is when Crichton says to says like really quietly, just hold on, and Junkie pays it and just carries on with his repairs. He's not, he's not threatened or worried by what they might be planning or anything. He's he just nothing
3: seems to phase him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, in that moment, exhibiting the same flaw that Maiden Taiwan Maiden. had, yeah, he yeah. underestimated the weaklings. Yeah, um, to his doom. Mm. Doom. Oh, by the way, anyone who is reading along or listening to the audiobooks, you can stop the episode now because this is basically where the book ends <laughs> in the audiobook. Is it worth getting to the end of the book and then discussing how the audio? Oh and- right, yeah, we'll we'll cover that at the end. Someone does mention it briefly. Um, we will we'll we'll get some nice timestamps for you in the show notes so you can listen to the beautifully seamless way in which. Goodman is cut
0: out. So just to wrap up this one before we head back to uh, Goodman, it's really funny chapter as well. This one, in parts, Crichton in particular is at his best. As Dave points out, he's got a and pinned down under a rather large sheet of metal. <laughs> what was this? Dilly nnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnnn knights
3: says. I'm sure Robert would have made the most of the line. I'm absolutely dandy, sir. Yeah, this is kind of maybe it's the Ace Rimmer bias in my mind, but this is peak. Series four crying to me. Like this the I'm fine, thank you, Susan, and you know that that, that
0: style oh, yeah. of Crichton. yeah, And uh quarantine, I uh, have a medium sized firex bearing. Oh yes, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, but the line straight afterwards when it says he poked on the rubber and found his arm. I'll attach this later, sirs. Right now we'd better get this T chest back to the lipstick called vertically challenged one. That does not sound like a Crichton line. That sounds no, like an Ace line completely.
3: But I, I yeah. think this is this is perfectly fine. This is Ace influencing Crichton. This is this is Crichton paying homage to Ace perfectly right, okay. like transparently. He's been enraptured with Ace since he arrived and I, I think this is this isn't a case of uh let's say the last human misappropriating lines. Um I think this is a this is a character decision.
2: The problem is is that Ace delivers that line in the show.
3: Oh right, yeah, okay.
2: That's what I'm saying. Is like that. That that that's the problem I've got. Is that like it, it's attributed yeah, to seemingly the wrongness yeah, because of what it's he not heard. a fresh line.
3: Yeah, it's it's almost it, it, it's it's paying lip service to the fact that has still died like a chapter earlier, and and we kind of need to be reminded of like put a full stop on like his his influence on on, on the crew, and so mm. Crane's been a bit cheeky. Really, I think he's just you know.
0: Oh, it could be yeah, deliberately. Taking on Ace's uh, mannerisms to inspire the everyone. same sort of confidence, hundred um, percent in the rest of the crew that Ace did. Yeah, it's his I think job I, is to keep everyone safe.
3: I think it would be terribly unfair to assume that Robert forgotten what the sort of things that Crichton would say. Because there's a there few people do actually point this out, don't they? Yeah, International Debris uh, says they
0: had to go back and reread the whole section because they refuse to believe Robert write Crichton like that. Uh, Doug committed similar crimes in Last Human. Right, You're yeah. a hubba hubba at one point, but Rob's been f- far better with characterization so far. Yeah, that's yeah. I think the fact that it is amongst so many great Crichton-esque lines is it's yeah, it's it's definitely not a
3: mistake. I think if it was paired with a performance, it would be communicated a lot better than it is on the yeah. page. Like if if Robert would say it and the rest would have a reaction of a slightly sad but. Resolute smile or something like you know. Everyone knows that. Yep, let's do it for Ace. Ace would be would have said that you know.
0: Or it would be slightly awkward coming out of Robert's mouth, and it would be it would be made clear that this was
3: him. Putting on, putting it on a bit of bravado. Yeah, yeah. everyone's trying to step into Ace's position, and all together they're just about manage it because Rimmer does it a bit, Crichton's doing it a bit, and Lister steps into that when they when they get more into the game. He takes the lead there as well. So everyone's kind of Mm. doing their little bit to be Ace, basically.
1: Okay.
3: Then we head into Laredo for. Most of the rest of the book. (laughs) Sorry. Have you quite finished?
1: Nope.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I find this initial part, like, it plays out largely in the same way. And, like, most of chapter seven and eight basically is just the scenes from Gunman. But the narration, the prose adds a lot to it. Um, it gets you in the mood more, and it emphasizes that you know in this world, Crichton or carton is it's his world, and these three extra people are are strangers in this world. Mm-hmm. No one knows who they are, and they're very elusive and mysterious, whereas in the t v version we follow them in and we know them, and they are acting as Lister Cat and Rimmer mm. um whereas Crichton's been weird, so having the the narration be from not entirely in Carton's head, but certainly from his from, point of view, from the, from his world's point of view, adds a, an extra little dimension. There's also the fact that none of them give their names. Lister says he's called Lister at one point, but Cat um, and Rimmer don't. And also at this stage, we don't get. Brett Riverboat or uh, Riviera Kid or Dangerous Dan McGrew. Although the cat still does his Riviera Kid dance at the appropriate point. But yeah. without, with without introducing himself, yeah. he just does the dance.
3: Yeah, there's a few bits where it's a it's a bit like something we pointed out in Last Human, where we were never told Starbug was green. Mm. It was assumed that we knew that Starbug was green. And with this, I think there's a lot of... You've seen the episode. This is the bit from the episode. Of, yeah. I mean, later on, it does clarify everything later
0: on. Yeah. And including the names. Although it, it changes Dangerous Dan McGrew to Big Dan McGrew. Yeah. Which loses the alliteration. Which is a shame. You like a bit of alliteration for the nation. Another change is Brett uh, slash Lister uh, flicks a pool ball into Jimmy's mouth yeah. rather than an apple. Which would smash the fuck out
3: of his teeth. Well, it's a cleanly, so obviously. Just how do you put him. a knife into a pool ball, though? No matter how sharp that I knife, hate is.
2: that is just testament to how good he is. That's what <laughs> my brain is doing because it's like to put a sharp object into a round object and jam it at the top. That requires skill and accuracy. So yeah, it's, that would be tough. Totally and yet possible. still
0: be able to flick it off yeah. with these.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. But the apple is funnier. Yeah,
0: flicking myself off to Trisha.
3: It's a comedy. it's a comedy. Apple. It's a comedy. Apple. Tell what.
2: One of the comments mentioned, like, was there even pool in Western times? And I was like, that's, that's a really a good point. point. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really fucking
3: good it point. It might be an actual. No, I have never seen a pool table in a Western. <laughs> okay, hang on, hang on. Uh, well, I mean, there, there was a form of it in the 14th century. there will been like
2: billiards and stuff. I assume, it's like, you know, the like those yeah. mm-hmm. kind of started yeah. up and then older. The... But yeah, I think pool ball is like a, that's a stretch because I don't think pool was the thing. Especially
3: not in the Midwest. Yeah. It's certainly not a cliche, is it? Playing cards, not ball. Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, in the TV version, there wouldn't have been room for a pool table, and that's it. There was
2: no budget. No No, no budget for a pool table.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No pool tables in either Red Dead games, and they're both set at the very end of the Wild West era, like 1900s, it ends. 1901 or something like that. So that's my um, research done. (laughs) <laughs> and there's no mountains near um, Niagara Falls <laughs>
0: <laughs> what we do have though in terms of differences from Gunman when Rimmer slash Dan McGrew gets into his fight he pauses to just reel off loads and loads of bestiality based oh, jokes my
3: God.
2: <laughs> I, I'm on board I mean <laughs> they are fucking exquisite
3: up <laughs> <laughs> having fun
0: Well, Rimmer's having fun. Rimmer's in this situation where he feels completely safe. He has none of his natural cowardice. And so it's similar to when he strides up to Hudson. Safe in the knowledge or so he thinks that Hudson can't hurt him and is able to to be the Billy Big Bollocks to him. He can do this to these fictional cowboys and then beat the shit out of them. And he is safe in the knowledge that he does that. And so Rimmer is just doing what he would always want to do in any sort of confrontational situation.
2: It's the, it's the, uh, your mothers. And like, you can imagine you just like pointing yeah, all, literally
1: every you can single hear one. And, like, your mothers. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the, the smile at the end of it, you can imagine. I love it. I just, oh grim. my God. It's interesting as well. There's something I've only just realized that both Rimmers get into bar fights in this book uh, yeah. and only our Rimmer wins it. That's true. Well, to be ace loses his own purpose, though. That is tr- also true. I'm sure that relates to something, but I can't be bothered.
2: This is where the gory descriptions start to creep in. The first set of spurs split his pants and shirt wide open. The second carved a deep, neat and dotted line up his body from groin to forehead. I was like, that is a really unpleasant image. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, strapping.
3: Why do you hate groins so much, Rob? <laughs> it's
2: Groin to forehead, yes, it starts there and just doesn't get any better. I'm surprised he didn't cleave him in twain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then eventually we start to deviate more from gunman and there's a whole sort of extra bit between we've still got the cat shooting the sign down and whacking quite over the head with it which yeah. as people have pointed out in the comments is never going to be as funny to describe that in prose as it is to see it on the no. telly but it's fair enough Fair enough. Stuff so much funny when you see
2: it in the distance. Yeah, like the, the directing the is, shot is spot on.
0: But then, yeah, basically between that and Crichton sobering up and getting his shit together, it deviates quite wildly from the TV series in that it does things that you would not be, <laughs> you would not be allowed <laughs> to do.
3: Janet Street Porter would not have allowed this. <laughs> Janet Street <laughs> Porter <laughs> would not allow any of this.
0: Um, like you couldn't even do some of this stuff in a <laughs> actual like horror movie let alone mm. a BBC sitcom before we got onto the extreme violence and gore Crichton slowly but surely starting to remember things about why he was there and noticing the weird things, like, he notices that his memory has suddenly disappeared and, like, why can't he remember anything from before this morning? Yeah. He's slowly starting to work out that the world that he's living in isn't real, and that really reminded me of Better Than Life. Well, The End of Infinity, rather than Yeah, yeah. Better Than Life, the novel, but, yeah. Lister and, and Rimmer slowly realising that their lives, since they got back to Earth, didn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, that's what Crichton's going through here.
3: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that, isn't there? <laughs> lot of not being in the right reality. This is when the
2: the metaphors become a lot more obvious. With like the going for the memory banks
3: and Oh I love that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I yeah, do like that. Really, really good addition to it. Just more building tension, you know. Yeah. Because if obviously if Ward managed to blow up the bank, whether that meant his maths or his bre- like, you know, memory it uh, yeah. would have fucked everything.
0: Yeah, now that it's been spelt out to us the readers exactly what's going on they don't need to be as subtle with the no, with no. the metaphorical character <laughs> names and so you've got what's, what's the name of the guy whose funeral it is? Uh, Cecil Central Processing Unit
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Central Cecil Processing <laughs> yeah. He's the inventor of the Central Processing Unit
3: <laughs>
1: I'm not bad yeah
3: <laughs>
2: yeah
0: I wrote, like <laughs> I wrote down two notes for this bit which first was i'm getting better <laughs> i feel happy and finally um Rimmer hates manure
1: <laughs>
2: yeah there was uh somebody mentioned the, the, the line that very much makes me f- like think more of like blackadder than um Went off, is that uh, Raymond tense his jaw then fell back in step with a cat. You're absolutely right. We're not looking for trouble, but if trouble comes, he's going to regret the day Mr. and Mrs. Trouble decided to have it off. And that very much <laughs> reminded me of, like, um, Mr. and Mrs. Spank to pay a short, sharp trip to body land. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Quiddin's comment, by the way. Yeah. And yeah, also uh, we're we're not at home to Mr Cockop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to regret the day Mr and Mrs. Trouble decided to have it off. <laughs> and again, Rimmer's having a great deal of fun for now. For now. Until, until... it's <laughs> this bit where they lose their special skills, isn't it? It is, yeah,
3: just it after is. the Cecil CPU, um, we see that yeah. the doctor is pestilence. Yeah, the doctor that pronounced him dead. Uh, yeah. Also, I should say just briefly, the Undertaker say, "Well, I'm no medical man. You know, the doctor told me he's dead, so he's dead." Is possibly the seeds of uh, incompetence a little bit, like the kind of bloody-minded, pig-headed, Jobsworth sort mm. of of situation. It's not exactly incompetence, but you, you can see it kind of maybe comes from the same place. The so Dave points something out here, which also occurred to me. Dave says, am I wrong, or
0: does Rob forget to set up the idea that you have to clap to get out of the AR game? When Rimmer claps to quit, it feels like it comes out of nowhere unless you've seen the TV version. Yeah, This is the comment yeah, I was
3: thinking of before when I said, yeah, it's assumed you've seen the episode. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: There's nowhere that I can remember. When I got to this bit, I was like, hang on, did they actually say?
3: Because we don't see them go, going in. Clap. In the TV no. show, they explain it as they're going No, in. but they
0: mention
2: it at the beginning of the book, though. They mention it when they're talking about how it's different from Better Than Life.
3: Oh! Oh, oh God, that was years ago, Danny. At the beginning of a previous yeah. chapter. It's not
2: in this section, but, right. you know, this book is not solely known
1: <laughs> to be yeah. read in section. It's not designed to be read the way we read it. <laughs> it was, <laughs> okay. yeah.
2: But I think it's mentioned when they talking about the... the Zero-G kickboxing. Yes.
3: Sorry, Zero-G
2: kickboxing,
0: kickboxing and, and
2: Wimbledon. And,
3: and Zero-G Wimbledon.
0: <laughs>
2: frankly crying surprised that list had even considered using the thing they all had a similar rather unpleasant near lethal experience with a similar device some years ago true the simulator was not so thoroughly addictive at least the player was aware he was in a game and it was a simple amount enough to get out clap your hands and switch on the pounds of the gloves which the electrodes and powered down the simulation so i think uh, it's just the fact that it was just that long ago that we read it that we'd forgotten it
0: oh, yeah we've uh, forgotten it but if you're reading it all in one go yeah, no, it should be for a few days. It's a little yeah.
3: bit throwaway that throwaway detail, but yeah, yeah, it is mentioned. It's fair play. It's, it is explicitly stated. It's not <laughs> fair Fair <laughs> enough. And my lawyers have told me to say. <laughs> and
0: yeah, we should mention that during this section, Rimmer uses the word retards as an insult, uh, which a few people have pointed Jeez. out that's uh, that. Dave describes it as one of those uncomfortable anachronistic shudders. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's one 90s. of those things where, at the time that this book was written, none of us would have batted an eyelid about that word being used in that way. But yeah. now, thankfully, we're a little bit more.
3: At the time this was written, we were probably all using that word as well, if yeah. we were being honest with ourselves.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like the <laughs> we were. <laughs>
3: what a bunch of. <laughs> you know. And I could I could probably stop giving go, me work to do. <laughs> pretty much guarantee. Just beep beep those. Like, actually, yeah. I might
2: bleep those actually because it would be, yeah. be even worse to find out what we actually said. <laughs> that had to be so bad that
1: we
3: had to bleep it out. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you can pretty much guarantee if you if you ask Rob his opinion right now, he would say yeah no you don't use that word. Like it's, it's just it, it's just society has improved in that way in that that is massively out of out of step now. And that is a good thing, the end.
0: So now that the virus has spread to the AR unit, then things go downhill pretty quickly for our heroes <laughs> and Rob like I wanna to speak to nineteen ninety-six Rob and just check that he was You're okay. Right,
3: You're okay, hon. <laughs> speaks just... to nineteen ninety six and, and and he would say, I just like I'm just really paranoid about about viruses and, and the effect they could have that's not a problem in the future, right? <laughs> um, bye. <laughs>
0: International Debris <laughs> summarises it quite well. I think famine eating Lister's finger is the point I realised I was becoming somewhat uncomfortable with this novel on first read.
2: <laughs> I had completely forgotten about that little bit of prose and I read it and I felt and I don't normally get that. I I'm quite I've got quite a strong stomach, but that really bothered me that bit for some reason. Yeah. It's just it's ever so slightly too far for me. And I really can't work out why. It's just
3: disgusting. I mean, I could work out why it's because he ate Lister's finger. It's worse because it's a description of the. Oh, it's the crunching. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's awful. It's
2: awful, and it, it's not it, even that. It's that. It's what happens afterwards because he literally bear hugs Lister and breaks all his ribs. It's the ridiculously realistic sounding like it sounds like a light bulbs popping in a bag, and that's exactly what a broken bone sounds like. It's like it sounds like that. I clearly describe it as a carrot being snapped under a pillow. <laughs> that is from a foley point of view that's how I would do it like that is you know if that's the thing of, of realistic that's yeah. what it actually sounds like, like a crack
3: whipper it sounds like that sounds, it sounds like that sounds song. like it should be a, a euphemism oh I tell you it was really disappointing we're like snapping a carrot under a pillow oh I could snap a <laughs> carrot I could trap a leopard I could trap a leopard <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: good call back
1: <laughs> but it begs the
0: question how does A. Rob and B. You know exactly what broken bones sound like? Have you not seen a
2: video of someone breaking their arm? No. Yeah. I've seen a guy who is arm wrestling and his arm breaks.
0: Yeah. Link in the show notes.
2: So not You hear it go and it's like a dull...
0: Well I have but only fingers and nose none of which, neither of which were particularly... I don't think
3: your nose is a bone. I think that's cartilage. Well, Fingers well, are definitely a bone. But but the bit you would have broken, the bit where it's bent anywhere, your hideous bent nose.
0: <laughs> Actually, in actual <laughs> fact, I had more of a bent nose before I broke my nose. <laughs> and they reset it, and it was straighter than it was before.
3: Oh, that's like getting hit on the head and then getting hit on the head again and getting your memory back. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not really... <laughs> That's like you—you you
2: can fix someone's black eye by punching the same
1: punching eye them again. <laughs> um,
3: yeah, I broke my wrist, jumped off a wall, ah. and it like bulged. Didn't break the skin, but there was a bulge in my, in my wrist.
0: Warbo Dog says I didn't really enjoy reading any of that, although I would have found the extreme fantasy violence funny when I was thirteen. Does Rob think it's hilarious, or is it just the Grant Naylor divorce novel taking out its frustration on all our beloved characters at the end? <laughs> you know what?
3: I wouldn't count that out, to be honest. <laughs>
1: mm. I
3: think there's there's a part of Rob that um, finds this stuff funnier than the average reader does. And I I, I don't think he's writing a lot of this to be Uncomfortable and awful. No. I think he's writing this to be f- to be funny. And, I think he just has a darker sense of humour. And, and some yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it really connects. Um, and other times it doesn't. I'm just gonna let this dog out.
0: I guess yeah, your mileage may vary as a reader as to which how far it goes for your personal tastes. But yeah, it's it's like you can see it as like it's Tom and Jerry type violence, except it's happening to actual human characters that we care about. So then we go from that to, well, all our heroes are completely fucked (laughs) physically. But nevertheless, we limp on to the denouement, to the big showdown. And the quibbling between the characters being the thing that makes Crichton remember is really nice. I really like that. Thematically, it's, it's not quite the same, but thematically it's similar to Terraform as well using the way that the characters interact with each other and like flipping that around in order to get your way out of a situation a sci-fi situation that you find yourself in yeah is the fact that they were literally telling him everything like all the facts about Red Dwarf and about Starbuck and about the situation that they're in and the Dove program and uh, all the rest of it and that didn't work but just being around them being themselves and quibbling and being the characters that we know and love that being the thing to snap Crichton out of it is yeah perfect indeed also, at this section, uh, Lister calls Crichton matey pie, <laughs> which I am taking as Ace's influence. <laughs> yeah. That, that's Lister acing
3: up. That one's a little bit more likely to be just, like, Rob well, temporarily being tone deaf, but, um, yeah, matey pie. Yeah, I, I, in fact, that's not even an Ace thing. That's a Rimmer thing. Like, you imagine say, him say, calling someone matey pie in a kind of a barbed way. Yeah. But not Ace saying it in a sincere yeah, way. In a genuine way. Yeah matey yeah, boy matey boy yeah, matey yeah. Boy. Mm, yeah. He just he, Lister would just say mate because he doesn't fluff about with language
0: International Debris hits it on the head saying so much of this new dialogue is absolutely spot on especially Rimmer stuff I do wonder if the two of them talking of Rob and Doug had more influence in character directions because Last Human 7 and 8 really cast Lister and Crichton as the centre of things whereas this book is full of Rimmer stuff and great new Rimmer rants and some decent cat one-liners. It's balanced out in the meantime, uh, but this is one huge difference between the two books.
3: Yeah, yeah, good point. That's a fair point. <clears throat> I did enjoy the uh,
2: when when turns says the cat and says, um, "I don't know why, but you make me think of a driving wardrobe the size of a warehouse." And the cat says, "I don't know what that could be, unless you're thinking of that driving
1: wardrobe." I've got.
3: <laughs> 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 It's good, it's good. This it is the first time, really, that the cat... Um, I think this book might be the first time the cat feels like the show cat. There's always been a weirdly kind of separate character in the other books. It doesn't exactly map on to what the, the TV the TV show version, apart from... It almost feels like it's the version of the cat from the very early Series 1 episodes extrapolated out yeah. into something a bit different. And then suddenly this book is just slams right back with... Series four, five, and six. Cap. Yeah. Uh, so similar with Crichton. Like you say, it's just this is the version of Crichton that I f- can write the best for. So I'm going to write this version of Crichton and this version of Cap.
0: And then it's showdown time.
3: Showdown.
0: It's business. His business time between the Apocalypse Boys, and Death turns up for the first time in this section. He's yeah. the father as
3: well. Yeah. 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 I thought they were all brothers. Well, wow. Not in this, not in this fucking world, mate. It's like the uh, the hillbillies is he, he <laughs> is their brothers, but also their fathers.
0: And your agree. wife, who's also your brother. <laughs> um, so when I was reading this, in a similar way that uh, death in the TV series was Dennis Lill, who was the simulant captain, I pictured this as being John Keep, yes, in some way. Yeah. Because there is a line, I think it's deliberate, where it vividly describes his grin. And that was also, Jun Keep's grin was described, that lifeless, uh, evil grin. Yeah, I can't remember the words.
2: Did he? Did, did Jun Keep design this virus then?
0: That's the, well, I got the impression that it was the same virus that he gave to Maiden Taiwan. Yeah. That shut down all his systems and paralysed him. It, yeah. That's the same virus he then infected Starbucks Navicon with to wipe mm-hmm. that out. So yeah, I very much see it. death is Junkheap's representation in here.
3: But he's described differently in other ways, like having like green flesh hanging off him. Um, yeah. Whereas the agonoids are basically bare metal skulls, aren't they? Are they? No, yeah. they they have yeah. skin like leathery skin pulled tall. Oh they
0: did but yeah. it all rotted over the years yeah. and it left them grey. Basically if this was a film it would be played by the same actor as Keep, yes. but look different to Junkie. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So I guess setting up that virus is the is the only reason really that we have this weird situation with um Maiden Taiwan and Pizza Crap, who are essentially mm. the same character, split into two because you had to kill one of them in order to set up this virus.
1: Mm. (laughs)
0: Yeah. But equally, you could have just said, it's a virus, Mm. without it being the same one (laughs) from earlier. So Yeah. But in other callbacks to the previous chapter, when the cat gets shot in the head, it says he feels like someone shoved an umbrella in his brain uh, and and opened it up, much like a small metal cocktail umbrella in the Uistra. (sighs) Uh,
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I was hoping that wasn't going to get mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I didn't twig for me, so th- thank you for highlighting that one,
0: Ian. <laughs> then Lister is decapitated, and it's kind of, it reminds me very much of Vivian in uh, The Young Ones, uh, especially when the decapitated Listerhead starts talking and sort of realises he can still direct his body and starts shouting around. And also when he, get, he gets the cat to kick him in the head so that he can move around, I just get the vision of Vivian stumbling around kicking his own
3: head. You took your time, you bastard!
1: <laughs>
3: Again, next wolf. <walker. laughs> Yeah. And um what is the line the The cat saying, Are you alright? <laughs> or was it hang on, is it Rimmer that says he's Is it right? Rimmer
2: saying he's alright and he says, Yeah, I have a hole clean through the centre of my oh, head Oh yeah,
3: Rimmer says are you alright? And then the cat says to Rimmer later on, Are you alright when he's a puddle of soup? <laughs> <laughs> I do like
2: the line though says I do I now have somewhere to keep a pool cue if my hands are full.
3: <laughs> <laughs> pool again. Uh, what is your obsession with pool and genitals, man? <laughs> it's all balls with you, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> and then Rimmer
0: becomes a pool. Ah. And yeah, so yeah, Cat's been shot on the head. Lister's been decapitated, and then um, Rimmer is is burnt to death and um, sort of melts down. But the difference is that that's actually literally happening. Yes. Effectively. Yeah. This is that's what's horrible. happening to Rimmer's light bee as in real life. As is what's happening to Rimmer in the game and uh it's horrible.
3: Yeah, the difference being that Lister and the cat are just in the game. They're just having pain dealt out to them, but there's nothing they can do to their physical body, but because Rimmer is electrically connected, he's infected and therefore dead.
0: If you're electrically connected, you're infected. You're infected. That's if how you remember.
3: Glove don't fit, you must have quit. If the glove don't
0: clap, you're in the crap.
3: You're in your piece of
0: crap. <laughs> you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. Is really, I like it in a weird way because it's just really well written and it's so evocative. And that, like, I don't know, it seems to last ages that description yeah. of Rimmer slowly melting mm-hmm. and being engulfed in the flame and feeling every little bit of it. Yeah. And obviously, it's terrible because this is happening literally to our literal rimmer, yeah. but it is it is well written. And we don't what realize it is. that
2: it's literally happening. That's the it, thing. Really. is the the worst part is is knowing that later on it's like oh that actually that is how he died in like incredible agony. It's like that's
0: awful. That's true. Actually, <laughs> really awful. I'm taking my knowledge <laughs> of how the book ends into this chapter, whereas yeah, the first time you read it, you're not supposed to realize that that's literally happening to Rimmer. Yeah,
1: I guess. yeah. it's not
2: good. It's fucked, mate. But then Crichton does the honourable thing, and you know, learns his it's, uh, oh. yeah. It's almost like he comes out like a like an angel.
0: Yeah, and his big white suit, and his doves. It's what happens in the the episode, but yeah, enhanced by the the time taken around it. And yeah, this whole section is probably about. A third to a half of the gunman's section of this book is effectively the last five minutes of the episode. So yep. they really take the time to flesh it out. Unfortunately, a lot of that involves actual flesh being burnt, singed, torn, snapped, broken.
3: Crichton does uh, explicitly mention like the, the his crewmates' sacrifices as well. Leading mm. back to what I was saying before. That it was a very deliberate decision from all of them to essentially take the risk of sacrificing their lives for the chance of <clears throat> as many people getting out alive as possible mm. um, but having said that are we supposed to read this as because Lister <laughs> shouts at Crichton and distracts him did Lister effectively accidentally kill Crichton in that moment Is that why Crichton, was Crichton dead because he got shot like that or was Crichton going to be dead anyway because he was always going to take on the virus
2: unclear
0: that's a very good point, because presumably there was a way that Crichton could defeat the virus without killing himself.
3: He says later that Crichton decided to cure the Navicom and didn't have enough time to cure himself.
0: Mm. So in another situation where Lister hadn't have distracted him, yeah. then the Apocalypse Boys wouldn't have got their shots in before Crichton did, and therefore he would have had time to save both the Navicom and himself. Yeah. So well done, Lister.
3: Prick. Fucked it up again, mate. You like indirectly killed Ace. Like it, 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 it's (laughs) it's spun as that they both made sacrifices for him, but actually he indirectly killed. Like he, there could be a case for charging him with manslaughter for both.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Particularly, crying. I think think
3: Ace Ace made his own decisions. Ace
0: made his own choices, but yeah. But I want to give the last word on this little section to Dave because it's one of my favourite comments from the whole of uh, (laughs) the book club (laughs) that we've been doing uh, where he mentions a particular line of Lister's Come on, you flab-titted slag. Uh, I love that this manages to simultaneously evoke two of the most controversial jokes of the Dave era like some kind of shitty Nostradamus. (laughs) If only famine had also spat on Lister's wrist. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent work, Dave. So we go back to reality, to coin a phrase. <laughs> they escape the game and discover that Crichton and Rimmer are dead. But furthermore, it's too late for the the fix to the virus to actually sort the situation because they've been accelerating towards the planet that they're about to collide with for so long. And then it's too late to arrest their descent. They get pulled into the gravity of the of the planet and Starbug is definitely going to crash regardless. So effectively Crichton and Rimmer died for nothing they could have figured out this climbing you know yes. clambering over to the wildfire plan straight away not bothered even trying to fix this fix the Navicom and just abandon Starbucks straight away that's a bit of a a bit of a shame for me that uh, <laughs> Crichton and Rimmer are, are dead definitively 100% dead at least in this reality and ultimately their sacrifice was for naught.
3: so my original thought Because that hit me again, obviously, when I was reading it. It was just like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this weirdness. There wasn't enough space in Wildfire. Like, you could barely fit two of them in. Mm. However, I think Pete makes a good point. Um, Let me see. Well, basically, Pete Pete mentions, um, I can't find the exact comment, that they, they could have just turned Rimmer off and put his light bee in a pocket and just taken Crichton's head and got him a new body on Red Dwarf. And and being able to fit into Wildfire, which is fairly robust logic. (laughs) Uh, And I can't quite think of a way out of this one as much as I want to, because there was nothing stopping them climbing up to Wildfire beforehand. They had hours and hours before they hit the planet. so (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe Wildfire um, didn't have enough fuel to... Like it didn't have enough um, normal impulse, impulse fuel, let's say, to go across actual space to get back to red dwarf, um, mm-hmm. and it only had fuel for a jump. It could only yeah. do a jump,
0: and maybe. that would have been messy.
3: Yeah. So have. all they ha- all they could do is jump and hope and that I they hope the end best. up right next to red dwarf, which maybe they do. Well, they do, yes, but that wasn't mentioned, so that actually can't be used really as, a, as an excuse. It is a, a plot hole, then
0: but nevertheless we find ourselves in the situation where they're effectively abandoning reality they've decided to try again they basically roll the dice and say well this is fucked this is situation's terrible we're we're definitely going to die if we stay here and all our friends are dead so let's just hit random and we might end up in a better place we might end up in the same situation but at least give it a go and that's good it reminded me of Into the Gloop <laughs> which is not something that even when we started the book club is <laughs> not something that I'd have ever thought was possible that this book would remind me of a new uh, Rob Grant Red Dwarf script but yeah just the idea that you know Red Dwarf now transcends dimensions like the setting of Red Dwarf can be in any anyone. any plane of reality that you care to mention like the fact that those two characters are dead doesn't it, Crichton and Rimmer doesn't mean that there's not other Crichton and Rimmers out there that you know whose adventures can be picked up on. Whether that is a satisfying thing emotionally and character-wise is more up for debate. And it's always made me slightly uncomfortable the idea that they can just go and say, "Oh well, here's another Crichton and another Rimmer," so yeah. never mind, everything's fine now. It's a bit
2: Rick and Morty do exactly this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's an episode when Rick and Morty fuck up their world so much that they decide to piss off to another reality where their characters died and they just assume their roles. <laughs> and that is canon. That is just what happened in the show. <laughs> so they basically turn everyone into kind of these kind of David Cronenberg like mutants by like a cold virus that gets mutated and it basically fucks everyone up and it just like destroys the earth basically. And they're just like, We can't stay here. We need to fuck off somewhere else. <laughs> so they literally just like piss off to another reality where their their cells have just killed themselves in a in a freak accident. And then they literally just jump in at that point and then that's it. They're there for that's it. And it's just it's so weird the parallels. Yeah. And they just they just assume those roles now for forever. And it's just it's really odd. I I, I actually completely forgot about this ending and it's flawed me how kind of sort of very odd it is it's just like a mm. it, it doesn't it it just doesn't yeah it doesn't it's feel very heartless
3: right it's...
2: it it feels really tacked on to be honest with you it feels like as if it's like a like, like i said it's like pushing the reset button um of just going well we can do more like this is the way i can make it happen so that we can do more but it just feels really i don't know Kind of, it, it nullifies all of the all he's, of he's what came before. Cake, if you're yeah. just gonna, yeah, he literally, yeah, some yeah, someone mm. said something similar. Um,
0: yeah, it's a stark contrast to Last Human, which has a definitive "this is the end" moment. Like, you know, no more adventures. Lister has settled down and he's here with Kachansky Whereas this, yeah, it's setting up the possibility for adventures new, but it still has some satisfaction to it. I mean, like, long, long before um, The Promised Land uh, had a similar line, as Dave points out, and maybe this was home means there's no fucking way you're getting through the final Book Club Dwarfcast without mentioning The Promised Land again. Ooh, we <laughs> but, already yeah. mentioned it for another reason. <laughs> yeah. Initially, The Promised Land reminded me of the end of Backwards. in, And also, The Beginning um, has this thing as well of... Um, because the the beginning ends with the slimes coming home but referring to red dwarf as home rather than earth and yeah the whole idea of the characters realizing that the ship red dwarf is home to them and that that's what they've been trying to get back to all this time it's not you know it's not they've given up the idea of ever you know going back to earth in their own time and so they're just happy to be on red dwarf that is something that has stuck with me since reading it in backwards and in, in it's it's informed how I feel about the TV series now because yeah. that's a kind of that's the, the state that I want the characters to be at
2: it's also very indicative of the fact that Lister has decided Earth is no longer the goal even in another universe it's just like I would rather not be doesn't matter about Earth anymore Like that's, that's no longer a fucking priority in my life Like, I'm willing to just leave this thing, fuck off to another rally. I just want to get to somewhere recognise. Like, (laughs) I just want to get to
3: some level of normality. He's he's also spent the vast, vast, vast majority of about two lifetimes on Earth already. Yeah. So, he's probably sick of it. I've had my fill of Earth. Yeah, International Debris picks up on the the cliffhanger, because of course, we have (laughs) to have a cliffhanger at the end of the book. (laughs) Um, You picked a rare old time to show up, we're about to be and then he's cut off. <laughs> International priest says, What? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very sort of, it's Riverworld at a time, isn't it? It's, mm, you
2: know,
1: we're, yeah. we're far
3: more <laughs> bothered about what happens to Lister. I mean it could be something that has already happened to like, it could be the the planet coming towards them. Oh it could be that it could be because then he will be like oh that's earth. I know exactly how to deal with this and then let's all go live <laughs> on earth.
2: Interesting to be mentioned the whole idea of like how can you enter a reality where you are no longer part of that reality? If it's meant to be your timeline, how can you have jumped into mm. a timeline where you are no longer there? Yes. Well, yeah. Rimmer's uh, dead
0: and Ace turned up. In our reality,
2: I know, I know. But like I say, we've had this conversation. Like you know, yeah. it's like it's happened
3: again. This happened again. Also, it's a really, really similar dimension, and based on the logic that we were talking about a few episodes ago, it's too similar. Like there would have been too much friction. To, they, they would have had to have jumped mm. into a vastly different.
0: It's different enough that you know, Lister and Cat are dead, then Rimmer and Krynn are alive.
3: I guess. Yeah, I guess.
0: But yeah, the point of divergence was divergence relatively late. Good. Compared to Rimmer and Aces, in that that was a childhood thing, and this was more recent. But the outcomes are vastly different. So presumably, there is a big old wedge of even more similar realities between them.
3: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there has been a lot of time. It
2: seems like it's years ago. They 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 say we buried you some years ago. You and the cat. Yeah. And it's when because it's BTL was when they diverged because it was the game that killed them. So
0: possibly even Infinity, the end of it, like towards the end of Infinity. That's without quite... Crichton there to come in and rescue them, yeah, yeah. but that yeah, the cliffhanger element of it—it it, it feels like a blatant placeholder cliffhanger. It didn't necessarily have anything in mind for that. It, it was just like yeah. that can be filled in at a later date or ignored. It's just a thing that's there. Yeah, and yeah, I I would hope that if Rob ever comes good on his long-repeated desires to write a new Red Dwarf novel that that would be referenced in some way but if it isn't then it doesn't really matter because it's uh, it's just there to show that there are there is about to be an adventure mm-hmm. if you want it but equally they could just do a back to earth 9 years later thing and and ignore that
2: it still seemed like rob is kind of interested in having some sort of like a like, no gap between... Like, Into the Glute kind of, you know, literally was, like, straight after that of time. Well,
3: yeah, it certainly shows, yeah, that he wants to... He likes the idea. I don't, of the I don't think himself. it would
2: be beyond his capability to sort of tie that up somehow. I think he's clever enough that he could, you know, make it work.
0: Well, it could be anything.
2: I would welcome a split-second continuation from this would be a good way to start the next book because it would feel like yeah. if it hadn't, there hadn't been a gap,
0: you know? Yeah, twenty five years now since it's just immediately
2: just go straight on from that, it would feel instantly familiar. Like that would help.
0: Summarise a few comments about the ending and what people make of it because it's it's mixed. It's a mixed bag. Warbadog says the others are promptly back for the closest approximation to a happy ending since better than life's the ending is heavy-handed, but we needed a bit of heartwarming sentimentality after that shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> R- sure. Referring to, yeah. you know, the violence and the, and the gore. True. Pete, part three. As a happy ending, this doesn't feel earned and it doesn't ring true. After multiple chapters of increasingly desperate circumstances and the deaths of three characters, we've effectively hit the reset button and nothing really seems to matter. I'm sorry, but compared to the endings of Infinity and Better Than Life, it sucks.
3: That bit is true, like because Infinity and Better Than Life have fantastic endings.
1: Hmm. i don't
2: know i wonder whether it's a time thing again like i always thought that there was more time to write backwards than there was last human and last human look and and last human really does feel rushed and i've never really noticed how flimsy the plot is of backwards when you kind of really sit down and work it out it does have a lot of
0: there's loads and loads and loads of build-up and then everything just ends in a really perfunctory manner but yeah, it's it's an odd one. But like my main thing is like over the years I've considered backwards to be crap, and then rereading it after Last Human, it's definitely not. Oh, no, and the thing is,
2: I don't. And the thing is, it hasn't diminished my enjoyment of this book, even though this stuff has been pointed out. Like it's still, I can still, it's still fine and i don't know why that is okay and yet last human it's bothered me that like as soon as we picked up last human and stuff maybe just give it a bit of time and just see if i can read it and and gloss over these things you know i don't want it to i don't want it to ruin my i i kind of want to read this again without it bothering me but i think i'm trying to ignore the negatives of things as much as
0: possible Let's give the last word on this main bit of book to Clem. Firstly, another take on on the ending. Killing off Rimmer and Crichton only to blithely replace them straight away with alternate counterparts doesn't sit right with me at all. It's far from being the only example of an oddly blasé attitude to death in Red Dwarf, but it's maybe the most disagreeable. Lister thinking of Red Dwarf as home is a nice moment, but it rings a bit hollow because this isn't his Red Dwarf and these aren't his Rimmer and Crichton. And yeah, I kind of agree with that. Mm Mm-hmm then Clem goes on to say I'm afraid this final part has somewhat taken the shine off backwards for me I can't honestly say that backwards feels of a piece with the first two novels but then there's some great stuff in those first four parts and even High Midnight has its moments gah all in all I just really really wish we'd got the last human yeah Mm -hmm. yes and no because yeah another novel of the undisputed quality of the first two from the Twin geniuses of Grant and Naylor would be great, but I quite like having more. Having two perfect books and two flawed books is more interesting to me than having three perfect books.
3: It is the perennial attitude of, of, or the perennial cry of anguish of any Red Dwarf fan is in the end, we wish Rob and Doug were still friends and didn't, (laughs) like, their part, their writing partnership didn't end. Like, it could have diverged still, but. I still wish it hadn't ended because you know I mean we've had a lot of great solar stuff since and obviously everything's happened in the 25 years since is is what's happened now but yeah. at the time like oh never mind
1: <coughs>
2: <laughs> it's, it, it it's a shame it's a big big fucking shame
0: so all that remains after this is a bit of an old epilogue the difference two and I really enjoyed the parallels with the difference one mm-hmm. with the midlog basically each paragraph starts in the same way, at least towards the start of it. Yeah. And then just gives Ace's version of what mm-hmm. happens rather than Arnold's.
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah. it's very nice. But also it's um it's match fixing essentially. Rimmer should be fined and kicked out of all sporting competitions for a period of minimum of three years, I'd say. What
3: they what they don't <laughs> mention is him and his mum were in on this and she put a pretty hefty bet <laughs> yeah. on before the race. Um
2: and that's how they could afford his training to go and to that thingy school. Exactly. That's how started it. Oh mate. Yeah, right. That's, that's how that's
3: how she could afford um, his uh, knowledge chip, so he could be yeah. as clever as his brothers.
0: Yeah. Just call him ace Groblar. <laughs>
2: oh, goalkeepers again. <laughs> Groblar's not a name I associate with football, it's a name I associate with bottom. <laughs> oh Chief, it's Victor Groba.
0: I don't really have that much more to say.
1: Well, yeah, I
3: think. I mean, I guess all I've got to say is kind of make making my point again. To me, this isn't a weird, disconnected. Pete Part three says, "What in the name of fuck is this doing at the end of the novel?" (laughs) Good, good turn of phrase. But um, yeah, losing isn't nothing. Is this the theme of this novel that Rimmer's dad was mistaken? That's what we're ending with. No, the theme of the novel is, I think, is maturity and self-sacrifice, and that's exactly what this entire last bit is about, it's about how he's been forced to mature forced to grow away from his parents and how he has learnt the lesson in this moment of sometimes you have to sacrifice something for yourself in order to help to lift someone else up yeah. by their bootstraps and that's, that's what he did in the book, that's what that's, that's what, what he does with Billy in, Joe that's what he does with Billy Joe, that's what the cat and Lister do specifically and Rimmer for Crichton and that in itself is the end of a journey that started with them in the backwards world, being like I've said before, like teenagers and and being at their the height of their selfishness by being put back to their teenage years, so they mature and 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 learn self sacrifice in the same in the same way throughout the book with the help of Ace. So I think I think there's a an optimistic message <laughs> in this book that is probably drowned out by excessive. Um, <laughs> shittery. <laughs> Just drowned in blood. Yeah, drowned in viscera.
0: Well, I tell you what, we've got a nice little stack of uh, uh, people's overall thoughts on the book. So let's go through those after a little bit of uh, a breather and for the very final time this particular bit of music. okay so let's have a look at our listeners slash readers big points then show you our small points and then we'll open up for the final time our passages for your deletation so overall thoughts on the book dave says backwards was much better than i remembered it definitely feels like the true third novel it's still not perfect it's choppy in places and the transitions between episodes aren't 100 percent smooth and the original stuff with the agonies is slightly patchy But when it works, which is most of the time, it really works. And a lot of this feels like real vintage dwarf.
3: Yeah, pretty much exactly in line with my opinion on the book, I think, overall.
0: International Debris. Obviously, we were planning to do this whole book without any Last Human comparisons. Ha! Yeah. But right at the end, I might have to break that a bit by saying it's such a better book that the comparison alone almost justifies the Rob was the good one arguments that went around in the late 90s. Last Human feeling like a template for some aspects of Seven only adding to that. It's got a relatively straightforward plot, it's got loads of memorable moments, for good reasons and a few bad, and it's still got lots of great new funny bits. It's got lots and lots and lots of character stuff, especially for Rimmer, and it's got plenty of nerdy continuity stuff. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it really reminds you where all that Rob was the best one stuff comes from. Yeah, As obnoxious as it got, and like yeah, you know, I was part of that. You can really see <laughs> because it's stark and it's something you kind of forget over the years when you don't really you're not really rereading them. But the mm. difference is stark.
0: And Warbadog says backwards turned out to be the great and essential finale to the trilogy, if occasionally idiosyncratic to a fault without a co writer reining it in. Since I skipped last human I was mainly judging it as the direct follow up to Better Than Life and feel that like there's less of a step down from that book than there was from the first to the second. Rob seems to get off on the shock value and getting our hopes up only to deflate them, so Ace was probably always destined for an anticlimactic death after arriving in the nick of time to fail to save them. Uh, The shocking parts prove the most memorable to me in the long run of Backwards and Last Human, so it works in that way, but also leaves a bit of a bad taste. And yeah, I can't really argue
3: with any of those. Take the rough of the smooth with this one. Yes. Both of them, uh, at this time in, in their careers were so used to having each other as their editors um, yeah. that you can just really, really see the whiplash of, of that influence no longer being there for both of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think Wobdog puts it very well. The, it's the idiosyncrasies that don't get reined back and chopped out and neatened up.
0: Small points, gentlemen. weapon a It's
3: very small. I apologise. <laughs> uh, at one point at one point when lots of bullets have been fired and I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was probably coming from the Apocalypse Boys um, it's described, the shooting was described as the carefree glee of FBI agents at a religious cult stockade which is (laughs) a very on the nose Waco reference I can only assume like, very oddly specific (laughs) um, early 90s very specific Um,
2: yeah Nice. The only reason I know of a certain word is because it's something that Rob has written down and then used in a song, which is the name Arapaho, which is the only. Oh yes, which was mentioned when the uh, Carton's talking to Bailey Belief, and he's um, yeah, and he's saying a oh, summer Arapaho, and uh, the only reason I know Arapaho is because of the lyrics for um, the Chicken Song. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which I looked it up actually, and it's like it's a, it's a it's a strange language it uses pitch as part of its language in the same way like Chinese does <laughs> so it's it's not just about how it's said, it's the t- it's the tone at which it's said oh, yeah, as well, it really makes a difference in yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought that was interesting
0: so it would be difficult to learn to speak a rapper huh?
2: yeah, <laughs> <it> <laughs> would, <laughs> yeah, so yeah to learn to speak a rapper would be a big old fucking, big old distraction and, and from and throwing cr- your chicken in the air
3: crucially, learning to speak Arapaho and learning to squeak Arapaho are two very different things <laughs> actually, that reminds me, there's a, there's a comment from Dave, who says, some Arapaho, some Navajo some, I don't know, is vintage to Ronnies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it really is
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's also vintage, probably wouldn't write that today <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What well, a different place the world is, but yeah it, it's definitely in character for a western sheriff to say that
3: especially a drunk one.
0: Speaking of um, drunk sheriffs saying stupid things, there's what I assume is a mistake that has made it into the book, but something that really leapt out of me as I was trying to drink in the whole uh, atmosphere. It says at one point uh, when Crichton slash Carton is tied to his chair and trying to reach for his bottle of booze, um, he tried reaching for it, but found he couldn't stand without the chair went with him. couldn't stand without the chair went with him
3: just then when you when you almost combined Crichton and Carton that was almost an incredibly brummy way of saying Crichton Crichton Crichton.
2: (laughs) (laughs) what a classic classic. (laughs) and Brian
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes our small points are spent for this and all the novels so now, I guess all that's left is to uh, poke our noses into each other's small passages for the final time. Have a good
3: snuffle around.
0: I believe, Capsey, your small passage is
3: the first to present itself in this occasion. In a, a stunning first for. The the Dwarfcast Book Club. A stunning first and last. A stunning first and last. Uh, My small passage will be an entire chapter. Unless um, Ian's going to read through the entirety of the last High Midnight uh, (laughs) chapter. (laughs) Crichton was trying desperately hard to put a positive spin on things. He was karooming backwards through space without any means of maneuvering, and his internal heating system would run down within 15 hours, freezing him solid on a permanent basis. That was provided he didn't slam into an asteroid and get splattered like a fly on a motorway windscreen before then. Furthermore, a psychotic agonoid was undoubtedly aboard Starbug by now and was probably torturing the crew in ways that would have given the Marquis de Sade bedwetting nightmares. Even if the agonoid had been overcome, which seemed most unlikely, there would by now be less than two hours' worth of oxygen left on board. All right, okay, that's the situation, Crichton told himself. Now, look on the bright side. He spent a good few minutes drumming his fingers on his girder
1: Excuse me
3: He spent a good few minutes drumming his fingers on the girder that was welded to his chest He couldn't find a bright side This wouldn't do Of course there was a bright side They'd been in worse fixes than this before now Hadn't they? His fingers drummed away again Alright, they probably hadn't been in worse fixes than this He tried to think about how things might turn out in the best case scenario After a dozen or so best-case scenarios had concluded with the death and destruction of all parties, Crichton decided to try and stop thinking altogether. Suddenly, he felt a thunk in his back, and while he was still trying to feel behind him to find out what had caused the thunk, he felt himself jerk upwards. He crammed his head back as far as it would go, but he could only make out the rear jets of an unfamiliar ship. Someone had harpooned him, and was now dragging him along on the end of a tether. As far as Crichton could tell, he was being towed back in the direction of Starbuck, this was either very good or very bad. Either way, he'd been rescued. Or, but he really didn't want to think about the or, so he went back trying not to think at all. And then he <laughs> died. Later.
0: <laughs> Mine and Danny's passages are adjacent, but uh, yours does come first.
2: So my passage is basically incredible amounts of rumoring going on. Lister snapped open his Winchester and checked it was loaded. I'm going to have to go out there and face them. Define we. We. The three of us. You, me and the cat. Lister snapped the rifle closed. Have you got a problem with that? Well now you come to mention it, yes. I do have a minor problemette with that. (laughs) My head is jammed at an angle of 45 degrees, my shoulder has a couple of bones jutting out of it and my right arm is set rigid in plaster of parrots. The cat has a hole in his foot and his face is concave. And you, Listy, you don't have two bones in your entire body that are actually connected. One strong gust of wind and you'll come apart like a matchstick model of the Eiffel Tower. How long do you think we'd last against these guys? How long do you think we'd last against a couple of enthusiastic grannies with Zimmer frames? We just need to distract them for a few minutes. <laughs> oh, we'll distract them alright. As soon as they see us hobble out of the door like refugees from the geriatric ward, they'll collapse in fits of helpless giggles. Our one hope would be they die laughing. Come on, let's have a sanity check here. We belong in an intensive care
3: it? not the OK come round.
0: Vintage Rimmer, <laughs> Problemette.
3: <laughs> yeah, that is quality.
0: And the final passage for your delectation on the final book club is... Lister's head coming off.
3: <laughs> <laughs> How fitting. It doesn't anymore. <laughs> Neither does his hat.
0: <laughs> Death was looking at him curious Famine grunted in anger and hitched back his sleeves But the thin gloved hands snaked out and stopped him Death nodded at War Tommy Hook, the son of a bitch War's eyes lit up with delight And he reached around his back, under his jacket, crouched and threw. Lister could see the tomahawk spinning towards him Almost as if it were slow motion His brain was telling his body to duck But his legs weren't too keen to bend He made a half-hearted job of dipping at the waist, but it was too little, too late. The tomahawk hit him, and suddenly he was spinning over and over, the pale moon orbiting his vision far too quickly to be real. He hit the floor, dazed. When the dust settled, he looked up. To his astonishment, he was looking at himself. He could see his body swaying, his fingers still wiggling. He was thinking, how could this be happening? The realisation swept over him like a tingling wave of static. The tomahawk had decapitated him. His headless body turned towards him. He could still control it, still felt its pain. Rimmer looked down at his head, horror and disgust and fear jostling his features. Lister, he gasped, are you okay? (laughs) Boy, the cat shook his head. In the awards for all-time stupid questions, that one takes the Nobel Prize. Lister's head snarled. Come on, you spineless bastards. You're going to have to do better than that. Through the blur of pain, he turned his body to face them and started advancing, blood gushing generously from his severed neck. Wow, the cat grinned in admiration. Does he have balls of steel or what?
3: If that isn't bravado inspired by Ace, I don't know what is.
0: <laughs> uh, it's also, it, it's a little bit um, polymorph, polymorph Lister. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, polymorph mist, Lister mixed
3: with Vivian, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> what wow, about. what a combination, Jesus. <laughs>
2: No, I need to now find out what a bowler is. And don't say it's a disease. A that bowler.
1: That.
2: No, bowler. He says... No, hang on. He says, Death nodded again and war reached back, pulled out a bowler and hurled it knee-high down the street. The metal balls wrapped around Lister's legs, snapping oh, his knees oh. with a sickening it's crack. It's two
3: balls at the end of a string, so it, like, it'll... <laughs> Where, when
2: the cat says, does he have balls of steel or what? Did death take that as a, as a nod to go in, <laughs> oh, oh, Do you see. have any balls of steel? <laughs> you do? Oh, crack on, crack on. crack <laughs> on.
1: <laughs>
0: no, you know, in all seriousness, a bowler is uh, the person throwing the ball. <laughs> as opposed to the batsman or the fielder.
2: A bolas is a type of throwing weapon made of weight on the ends of interconnected cords used to cap channels by entangling their legs.
0: And the person that uses them is known as Captain Bollas.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we should mention that, uh, in fact, if you only listen to the abridged audiobook, uh, which is, in fact, the only version of the audiobook available... Uh, then all the stuff that we've been talking about, Gummon of the Apocalypse, High Midnight, is effectively uh, non-existent.
3: So all all of the High Midnight chapters are gone, and instead you've got all of the Starbucks stuff just back to back, right?
0: Yeah, all of the stuff with Ace dying and um, all the stuff with Pizza Crap being killed and then Jung Keep coming aboard, Crichton, etc. That all happens. Crichton's plan happens where he blasts the bazookoid at the wall and everything goes tumbling out, including Junkiep.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think, if I remember correctly, there's also the thing where he successfully transmits the virus to the Navicom, which explains why Starbug is fucked and they can't just use Starbug to get away. Yeah. But none of the AR stuff happens, none of the cowboy stuff happens, there's no Gunman adaptation mm-hmm. at all. Effectively, Rimmer and Crichton are killed in the fight with Junkiep,
3: Oh right, yeah. So the the moment where Crichton reaches out and grabs Rimmer's light bee just in time after he shoots the hull, um, that part he's he misses. Uh, he misses it, and there's a new line that Rimmer Rimmer throws one last insult at Crichton, like "you stupid son of a prosty droid" or something like that. And then he Rimmer was in the ship just long enough to hear him say this, and then he gets sucked out into space and is essentially dead. And then when the gantry plugs the hole and Crichton's buried underneath it, Crichton dies during that rather than having the amusing uh, you haven't seen an arm anywhere, have you? Mm. And then presumably, just going from memory here, they yeah, the, the, the virus is in the Navicom, so they're like Oh shit! We can't navigate the ship. Let's go. So they do. They do what? I mean, the, the, one of the biggest problems that people like Pete Part Three have with the book is actually fixed in the abridged version because they just yeah. go into wildfire and then the end of the book happens. Yeah, um, it's really and strange. So, and so,
0: therefore, Ace's death and um, the battle with the two remaining agonoids does feel more climactic because it doesn't because that is the end. <laughs> like, that happens, and then uh, Cat and Lister go to wildfire, and the little denouement happens. So, yeah, you don't have that big climactic fight and then a whole gunman section.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Okay.
0: And I was kind of yeah. pretty sure I listened to the audiobook before I read the proper book. Or at least, because I was only... 10 when this came out i think i may have started reading but not actually got as far as uh high midnight before then giving up and listening to the audiobook mm-hmm. so i had no idea that i think from memory the first time i realized that this whole gunman section existed was when i got the second red dwarf quiz book a question of smeg and there were questions about it in there, and I was like, "What? Hold on." What <laughs> Went back right, yeah. and discovered, "Oh yeah, there's this whole extra bit of backwards."
3: That's really weird. Yeah, it is really weird, and it, it makes me think as well. Like I, because I don't know what bits would cut out, because you have to cut a significant amount out to bridge these books, as as we can. Like, I think there's probably other little chops and changes as well throughout. Mm. But uh, it makes me wonder, like, what was cut out of Last Human? Unfortunately, I cannot. Listen to the last <laughs> audiobook so I just, I just can't physically do it so um.
0: from memory all the DNA stuff was taken out of Last Human right and a lot of the stuff on Siberia was simplified
3: yeah but nothing plot changing I guess
0: no not massively yeah. this is the first instance I think of in Infinity basically most of the stuff that's based on episodes gets cut but that still leaves you a huge chunk
3: yeah, that's the radio show, though, right? Because there wasn't an or was there an abridged version of Infinity.
0: There was a, both abridged and unabridged of the first ah, two books. And it's just, the radio but, show
2: is a different thing to the abridged version of the audio. It's book. the
0: same edit, but with sound effects on it. But anyway, we will put a link in the show notes to the relevant bit of yeah. the audiobook on YouTube so you can listen to it. But yeah, it's a very interesting one because it does change more so than any other edit. In, in the audiobooks, it changes yeah. significantly. Um, and
3: there's the new on. Yeah. One line.
0: And so, our passage is sealed shut for the foreseeable future. That is the end of the Dwarfcast Book Club. A little project that we've been wanting to do for absolutely years and years. I remember first like jotting down the idea in a spreadsheet probably about six or seven years ago. Of, oh, Wouldn't it be great to do to go through the novels in the same amount of detail as we go through the episodes and we've finally done it we started yeah. in july 2020 it's now october 2021 and yeah complete pretty good going for us <laughs> to yeah, actually start ex- and finish the project
3: amazing pace to be fair i know <laughs> some of the episodes would have felt like you were waiting forever but Jesus Christ! I mean, it took us fifteen years to get through all the commentaries. So. <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. Sixteen
2: months to do sixteen commentaries. <laughs> yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll take that. Yeah, we'll take.
0: And that. because we're feeling smug and pleased with ourselves, we might as well read out a couple of uh, a couple of comments just to round things off. Uh, Dave says uh, ahead of the final recording can I just say one more time how great this book club has been yes. uh, the Dwarf casts have been great in their own right but there have also been some excellent discussions in the comments thread and I've loved the way the conversations and analysis here have fed back into the Dwarf casts themselves hopefully the Smegazine ones will be similarly fun uh, and Quinn says agree with Dave top work all round I think it's because it's largely new ground for everyone We discuss the episodes until we're blue in the face, but books and other content only come up occasionally, so having somewhere to have everyone channel it at once has been great. Very much looking forward to the Smegazines, which I've never once looked at. And the only reason we've read out those particular comments is to segue neatly into uh, discussing the Smegazines, which is going to be our next big project. I mean, the very next episode dwarfcast to be released will be our commentary and waffles on the young ones uh, but we've already recorded that so we're not going to ask for your uh, input in that one so much but then after that will be the very first edition of this magazine club i mean we're still i'm still hoping to come up with a better title I mean, yeah. this magazine club title tba <laughs> the working title this magazine club and yeah the difference between that and the book club is that for Capsy and Danny, it's going to be an intro cast. They have never delved into this magazines in any great depth they've perhaps seen bits and bobs here and there but for the most part it's going to be entirely new to you and so therefore we're not doing the exact same thing in getting um, comments in advance and collating them and figuring out what we're going to discuss based on what you guys are saying but there will be ample opportunities for you to have your input we're going to have a regular letters section to our little Smagazine tribute where we'll be reading out your comments but it's going to be sort of condensed into one section rather than weaved throughout the conversation as they have been in the book club. And also there's going to be instances where there are caption competitions, things where there were originally reader input into the original Smagazines that we want to replicate and so whenever there's a caption competition, for instance, in the magazine, we will provide that to you guys to provide your captions for and hopefully there'll be some amusing stuff uh, <laughs> derived therefrom. So, yes, listen out to that, and if you want to get involved, as always, you can leave your comments over at www.ganymede.tv, or you can follow us on Twitter.
3: Twitter handle is Ganymede Heighton, Okay. so this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working
1: okay. with.
0: Okay. But until next time... Stay safe, stay positive, stay happy, stay tuned is a 1992 American fantasy comedy film directed by Peter Hyams, written by Jim Genuine and Thomas Parker and starring John Ritter, Pam Dolber, Jeffrey Jones and Eugene Levy. Tim Burton was originally chosen to be the director on account of his art and style, but left direct Batman Returns. And as always...
3: Ed Bye, everybody.
1: Head Bye. Thank you for listening to g and DwarfCast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our DwarfCast again. Have a safe onward journey.
0: Goodbye. Hello. No, hold on. Cowboys. Goodbye. <laughs> I'll do it cowboy style. Howdy and howdy. <laughs> Look <laughs>
2: howdy, howdy, howdy.
3: howdy.
0: Clem says, it's a bit of a cliche, but I do like the way that John Keep talks. He's a properly gleeful... He, 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 he's a really. properly gleeful Yorkshireman. He's a 1950s bin man.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> when was pool invented? How is Bobby Pool from? was invented when someone had the idea of putting some water in a large <laughs> tower.
2: <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Google. <laughs>
3: Running was invented by Ian Running when he accidentally when he walked, walked twice. <laughs> he accidentally walked twice.
1: <laughs>
3: so
0: yeah, now that they the virus has spread to the AI I uh, uh, t- <laughs> <laughs> uh but right at the end Donna, fuck you <laughs> <laughs>
3: The fucking cat is trying to sabotage us <laughs>